Hello, welcome to the podcast Real People, Real Lives, Women Immigrants of New York, a storytelling project from New Women New Yorkers. Real People, Real Lives highlights a diverse picture of immigrant women living in the city. It elevates these narratives, moving beyond statistics and political rhetoric. In the summer and fall of 2020, we interviewed immigrant women from all walks of life. They were selected through an open call or contacted directly to ensure the participation of women from different backgrounds and affected by the pandemic in various ways. The participants talked about their immigrant experience within the backdrop of a year like no other, marked by the pandemic, Black Lives Matter, and the presidential election. Each story you will hear is a unique mix of determination, hope, challenges, and victories, small and big. Today, meet Marlene, an accountant from Chile. New York was supposed to be a quick stop on her way to Ireland. She ended up staying, driven by personal reasons and the military dictatorship in Chile. Life hasn't been easy though. In this interview, Marlene reflects on the challenges she has faced as an immigrant and after she converted to Islam. When I was in Chile, I was studying English. I was being successful. I was working well. I was saving for an apartment. I was ready to buy a car. And my dream was to go to college in Chile. I couldn't because we didn't have the money. And I was very frustrated about it. And I blamed the dictatorship for that. Pinochet was the dictator. When I came here, I came here on vacation for two months, and I was invited by my fiancé, who was an Irishman. We met at a protest in Chile, in Santiago. He was in Chile as a missionary. After, I think, four years, three years, I don't remember exactly, he was finishing his um, stay in Santiago, and he was going back to Ireland. He stopped by New York because he has a sister here, and family, so he stopped by and then he invited me to come here on vacation. He was supposed to take me to Ireland to meet his family because we were going to be married. That didn't happen and everything went south, so I broke up. And when I broke up with him, I decided to stay here and try to find a job and see if anything could work out. I didn't know the reality here. <laughs> And at that point, I didn't know the weight and the significance of living here illegally. I didn't know all the different layers of the law, of being here in a tourist visa, of not being able to save money for my pension, or not being able to have a medical insurance, and everything that comes with or without having your legal status. When you don't have documents, it's really difficult to find a job that pays you anything that is a resemblance of a real salary. I am a U.S. citizen for many, many years. Process was really eye-opening and painful. It was so many years ago because when I started the process of legalizing my status, I did it through an arranged marriage. And that in itself was terrible because I was in a relationship with somebody else who also was an illegal immigrant. On top of everything, the immigration officer was a crooked man 
and he wanted money to do the paperwork. He threatened us when we went to the interview. He showed us behind his desk piles of files from immigrants that he would not process because they wouldn't give him money. I reported him to his superior, and then this man was like, you know, dismissing me because why I'm nobody. I'm an immigrant. I want my citizenship. And this guy, the, his supervisor, he was telling me, you know, maybe your marriage is not even true. So we can dig on it and we can take away your green card. Forget mm -hmm. about the citizenship. That was really painful and hard and difficult. Finally, they transferred me to another officer and I got my citizenship. And, you know, years later, maybe four or five years, I was contacted by the FBI because they caught him doing this and not just this. He was giving fake social security numbers and he was an officer of the INS. He was taking away green cards. He was denying citizenships. He was doing so many wrong things. And the FBI wanted to interview me and to face him. And I was like, what is that if I get entangled? Because this was a ring of people in the immigration system with other people outside contacting immigrants and, you know, selling them the social securities. It was a whole thing here in Florida and Miami and some other places. I didn't pursue anything, but then I saw in the news that he, I don't know if he was convicted or not. The investigation came to the news, but in a very small thing. In Chile, the only religion that we knew that existed was the Catholic Church. My family has always been a very religious family. We would go to church every Sunday. We will go to uh, Sunday school. Because I have a very inquisitive mind, I'm always asking questions. When I was going to church and to Sunday school, I started asking questions about the Trinity, about Jesus. And the priest, the teacher at that time, would be like, no, we don't ask those questions. As I grew, you know, older and I understood more and my curiosity grew, I wanted to learn more and more because always I had this inside of me. And during mm -hmm. the time that I didn't have the papers and I was with a Moroccan guy, I wanted to kill myself. The despair was so deep in both of us that we were the end of the rope. We were just okay, that's it, this is not worth living. It was, you know, really bad. Then I went to, I don't know, multiple different religions, sects and things looking for the answers. But nothing would fulfill this emptiness that I had inside of me. So then I turned into the internet looking for answers. And then I found whyislam.org. That was a website and they had a simple form. They said, if you are interested in learning the religion of Islam, we can send you a Quran, which is the word of God that explains and uh, pamphlets and everything. So I sent the form and they sent me a box. I started reading the book and then I started finding the answers to my questions one by one. I was so happy and I was crying. I was laughing. And I couldn't put the book down. I read it at once, the whole thing. That's how I, I became aware of Islam. And I became Muslim after 
I was very young and well, much younger than now. I went in wholeheartedly with my heart and soul. It was good while being with Muslims and while being on my own at home. I was also living by myself. But when I went out, it was bad because people would spit on me. They will scream at me. They will yell. They will insult me. They will push me. And also at that time, I lost my job. I was unemployed for four years because I was wearing the hijab and nobody will hire me. When I was working in 2000, I enrolled at NYU for my bachelor's degree. And I didn't want to quit my studies because that was my dream. I started taking loans that I'm still paying. I have paid for like 12 years already and still I have $40,000 to go. And I have paid as much or maybe more in these 12 years. After I became Muslim and then I continued going to school, I was discriminated by the teachers because I was wearing my hijab and the classmates also wouldn't talk to me. They wouldn't want to work with me, you know, in groups. And because there are so many misconceptions uh, about being Muslim, you know, they will be like, who's forcing you to wear that? Is your husband forcing you to do this? I'm single. What mm -hmm. are you talking about? You know, it's my choice. And it, that is really insulting because... If you say to a woman, who's forcing you to do that? You are telling her you don't have the enough intelligence or the enough capacity to think for yourself and to make decisions for yourself that you need a man to force you to do something. Like you are subdued to somebody else. You don't have your own will, your own thinking, your own intelligence. I will stick by my values and I will stick by what I believe is correct. And I won't change. When I came to New York, I was kind of disappointed of what I saw and what I heard and what I lived through. People will say one thing in front of you, but they are thinking something else and they are doing something else. I realized that very early on when I came here. I remember in the early 90s, I went to an agency, a temp agency for a job. And then when I walked in, one of the white women said to another white woman, oh, at least she's not black. In my face, when I would say to my friends, you know, they are discriminating against black people, they will be, no, 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 no. You know, there are laws that, uh, you know, are anti-discrimination and they can protect themselves and this. And, and I was like, no, you know, I saw this and I heard that and I, I experienced this and that. And they will be, no, no, no. That is so much hypocrisy. I really fought to keep my own identity and my own culture and my own customs and not to be assimilated. I remember the executive director in my office, she pushed me, she insulted me. She was calling me ninja and making jokes and everything in a business meeting because mm -hmm. I was wearing a black hijab. And you know, many other people were in the meeting. Nobody said anything. Mm -hmm. Then I reported it officially to HR. And they didn't do anything. When we talk about, like, for instance, what happened to George Floyd, when this happened, many people were, like, uh, surprised and outraged and everything. Like, this never happened. Mm. happens every day. It happens mm. all the time. It has been happening for 100 years. It never stopped happening. Mm. The slavery didn't end it. It's a new slavery. It's with makeup and it's with the coating, with sugar coating, with everything, but it's a slavery. 
And there are multiple levels of slavery in the U.S. now. We as immigrants are slaves. Women are slaves. Blacks are slaves. We are slaves because we are second, third, or fourth class citizens. We are not treated equally. We don't earn equally. We're not given the same opportunities. So I don't understand why people would be like, oh my God, how is this happening? It happens. Since the beginning, when I came here in 1990, the first thing that I saw was this discrimination mm -hmm. and everybody was denying it. But how? And not that it was discrimination against me. It also was against me, but I saw it against the black people. Conversations where people will say, you know, blacks, they don't want to work. They're lazy. They're ignorant. They want to live off welfare. I doubt that the American dream ever existed. If it did, it was just for the white Europeans, not for all immigrants. It doesn't matter how hard we work, how many sacrifices we make. The American dream is dead for us. We are in a bad position. The, the entire world is in a bad position. And on top of everything, we have the pandemic affecting us all. So I think this is the historical moment for all of us. In 100 years, when people look at what happened, what we did or we didn't do during this time, is going to have huge impact and consequences. Things developed really quickly. And by March, I was sick. And I don't know if I got the COVID or if it was, you know, just my usual bronchitis during the winter that I get every year. On March 11, when the health organization announced that it was a pandemic, I was sick and I had to leave work and go to the doctor and stay home. I was coughing. I had fever. I was feeling uh, chills. My body ached like crazy. I didn't sleep like the previous two nights. When I went to the doctor on the 11th, I was already sick for at least three days or more. And then he said, go home. He gave me a letter and don't go back to work because this is a pandemic and it's serious. He gave me one of the medicines that they're giving now for the coronavirus. So I think he was overly cautious. He was really afraid to get close to me <laughs> because, you know, the doctors, they know what a pandemic means. Hear the word, just one word, and they're like, okay, take action right now. And I stay home like three months solid. I didn't go out for anything. And then also I didn't have the equipment to start teleworking because I don't have internet at home. New Yorkers, we are very resilient. I think that when it comes to help people, when things are going bad, it tends to bring out the good in the New Yorkers. I've seen many acts of kindness. I think we try to be good neighbors. I am a big believer in education. And I think that what every immigrant women should do is to educate themselves and to educate their husbands or boyfriends, their children. I think that education is paramount to making a decent living and being able to identify all the oppression, racism, discrimination, manipulation by the media and any other source. Because if you are uneducated, you cannot identify those things and we cannot fight it either.
Thank you so much for tuning into our podcast today. This week's episode was produced and scripted by Bruno Shapira and Aria Kanda. Editing is by Anna Semskova. My name is Daniela Golombeski, and I am thrilled to be your host. For more information about real people, real lives, and the transcript of this episode, head to nywomenimmigrants.org. Next week, you'll meet Dorothy, a teacher from Nigeria. The third edition of Real People, Real Lives, Women Immigrants of New York is made possible in part with funding from the William Talbot Hillman Foundation. Join the conversation by sending us an audio message about the episode or series at anchor.fm slash realpeoplerealives. You can be featured. You can also reach us at realpeople at nywomenimmigrants.org. See you next week.